Scripture reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is Paul's euphemism for death, people who've died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in him. That's understood. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. And what is it about this word in particular, the end of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians here, what, what is it about this word in particular we are to encourage one another with? And the short answer is resurrection and return. It's nice that they alliterate, but that's what this passage is about. It's not just about the return of the Lord. It's about how the resurrection guarantees the return of the Lord, if we want to put it that way. You know, we've been in 1 Thessalonians since August. We're going to finish it this month. And just to take a step back from this passage, you got this passage, which is about our specific future in Christ. You look at a passage like this and you realize, well, there's a lot of other New Testament passages from the Gospels all the way to the end of the New Testament that talk about our specific future in Christ. And when we're in passages like this one, you get two lines of encouragement moving from those passages. One is that our faith becomes sight. This is not said in this passage, that's actually said to the Corinthians, Paul's letter to them. But when we take our last breath on this earth, or before we take our last breath, and, and we get to be part of the generation that sees his return, sees him crack the sky this way and come, uh, whichever one comes first, at the end for us, our faith is sight. The other line of encouragement, and we do find it in this text, is uh, that our walking becomes rising. Uh, from walking with him to rising to him. By rising, we mean resurrection, which the logic of this passage proceeds from. Now, remember last week, let me point it out to you again. If you're looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, look back up at verse 1 in 1 Thessalonians 4, just to rehash a little bit from last week. Verse 1, chapter 4 we uh, taught you how you ought to walk and please God. And then you go down to verse 12, the verse right before our text this morning, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So you get this emphasis on walking. And this emphasis in 1 Thessalonians 4 on walking, talked about this last week, is uh, walking is the go-to imagery throughout the Bible from Genesis all the way when the biblical writers use an imagery to convey life with God, it's walking. Walk before me and be blameless. Enoch walked with God, etc., and so on, all the way through. You get walking all through Paul's writing. You get it uh, all through the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. Life with God is walking with God. That's what the people of God do. But there comes a point, and some generation will see it, where the walk with God instantly becomes arising to God. 
And that's what he's talking about here. Our own resurrection at the return of Christ, if that precedes our death. That's what this passage is about. It's about resurrection and return together. Why faith becoming sight is encouraging, just to think back to this particular line that comes out of passages like this one, two lines of encouragement, one of them is that our faith becomes sight. Why is that encouraging? Because we get to see Jesus. The end of verse 17 here says, we'll always be with the Lord and he'll be visible to us. You sitting right here in Christ this morning will get to see the face of Jesus Christ someday. It's guaranteed to us. And so we're told in the New Testament in other places that although we don't see him right now, we love him. We're told in other places that although everything is subject to him, meaning he is the king, we don't presently see everything subject to him. Nevertheless, everyone will eventually see Jesus for who he is, Lord of all. That's coming. Everyone will know it, though not everyone acknowledges it. When we confess freely by grace now, as we do, God's people, that Jesus is Lord, eventually the whole world will know that as well when he cracks the sky, as this passage indicates, and comes into view. So faith does become sight for us, and it's encouraging. We get to see Jesus. But now this line of encouragement we're going to talk about from this passage, walking to rising, why walking to rising is encouraging is because we're no longer earthbound. At his return, we get to put on our resurrection bodies. Now that may be news to some. For others, it may be what we've been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, if that's news to you, that we get a resurrection body, Part of the encouragement we derive from this teaching is that our physical bodies are not junked. We're kept by God, body and soul. Your salvation is not just about your soul. It's also about your body. You're, you're, we are, we are uh, embodied souls. Our bodies are not destroyed or annihilated by God, those in Christ. We are not uh, left to decay in the ground and to oblivion. Nor do we float around on the clouds when it's all said and done as disembodied souls. The Lord's going to meet us there, the text says, in the air. But that's, let me try to explain it this way. This will sound a little sci-fi. If you like sci-fi, I guess that's an advantage. But what we're being told here by the meeting in the air is uh, essentially we're being told we, we're going to be able to access dimensions that we cannot access right now. That's a helpful way for me to think about it at least. Because rising means I'm no longer earthbound. I'm no longer bound to or by the limitations imposed upon us in the present due to sin. We get to enter the abode of God. What is the abode of God? It's another dimension of life. And we go into the abode of God in our resurrected bodies. What is that? It's another dimension of physicality. Yeah, I don't know what this is going to be like. I mean, right now you've got like five senses, unless you're a mom, you've got six or seven or eight. And uh, you'll have like a hundred or a thousand senses maybe, you know, when you are finally, fully, humanly alive. This is the gift of God to us in Christ. We talk about this in other places in the New Testament with the word glorification, which is the goal of our salvation. 
We get to live on in resurrected bodies. Still yourself, there's no one else for you to be but you. But we'll be then no longer under the power of sin. It's the power of sin that's responsible for all of our present limitations and frustrations. Everything you don't like about yourself is then gone. Everything. But you stay you. You become you in Christ full on. Glorification. That's pretty cool to think about. Unless you might be here this morning and you think, well, I think that's kind of weird to think about it. I don't even know if I want to believe that. And I'll tell you, you know, um, here and now is all we know. And so I, I can understand how somebody might think that. And, you know, doomsday cults have probably made it difficult for all of us when we talk about the future like this because, you know, they always think some higher alien race is going to finally get down here uh, to us. I don't know if you got to see this this morning. I get here when it's dark on Sunday mornings and I got out of my truck and I looked behind me and there was the moon and Mars in the western uh, sky. And I looked in front of me and there was Venus. And I thought, well, that's a great thing to, to be between, you know, uh, as I'm thinking about uh, what this text is, is teaching us. Um, but nobody's coming from Mars. Nobody's coming from Venus. Uh, like some of the little, you know, uh, groups get in mind and, and, and to be uh, remade in some alien image. Uh, there's something called the transhumanist movement. Uh, transhumanism is a thing. And uh, right now, it, there's a lot of um, uh, working on technologies aimed at prolonging human life by decades. Uh, rescuing us from every disease, which is, a, which is a, a good thing to be rescued from disease. Don't know that it's that great a thing to be, um, pro have our lives prolonged by decades. I don't know. This is not that, this text. Okay? Uh, and yet, I'll ask this question, though you, many of you might find it an odd question to ask for an evangelical preacher, but how do we know what we're told to expect here in this passage is reliable? And not just some flight of fancy that Paul had due to his visions or, or, you know, some ancient pipe dream that moderns have learned because we're more technologically advanced. And so we, you know, we're suspect of this. Well, the only answer you can give to that question is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only answer the New Testament gives to that, to that question. How do we know that anything is reliable? The resurrection, the resurrection is everything. If the resurrection didn't happen, we're absolutely wasting our time this morning. And in fact, the Bible's very honest about this. If somebody was to ever ask you, what would it take for you to give up your faith? Your answer is from 1 Corinthians 15, show me a body. <laughs> show me Jesus' body. If you show me Jesus' body, then this is all up in flames. We're, we're done. But in the absence of Jesus' body and the good historical evidence for resurrection... We know, we have confidence that um, we don't have to put our hope in prolonging human life by decades or some alien race finally uh, rescuing us. That's misplaced hope. We're told, at least Paul believed it, verse 14, since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God brings with him those who've fallen asleep. And the way this is phrased means the Thessalonians believed it too. 
as has every living generation of Christians because Jesus walking out of his tomb is everything. Return, his return, is tied to his resurrection. The two go hand in hand. We can have differences on how we scope and sequence the end, and we do have differences, and we don't make those differences a matter of fellowship in this particular church. You can, uh, there's a variety of ways to scope and sequence the end, depending on how you read the prophets. When they looked, uh, were given glimpses of the future, depending on how you read apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. One of the great things about a resurrected body is I won't mispronounce stuff anymore and I won't whistle. Uh, as I do a lot. I know, you're, I, know, I know I get laughed at for that, and that's okay. Uh, let's just, we laugh at anything, that's fine. I like laughter. Um, so we can have differences in how we scope and sequence the end. Where we cannot have any difference is in affirming the reality of his return. In fact, that's actually core doctrine. Too many have made too much through the years of the scope and sequence of differences, prophecy buffs and, and such. But no one in Christ can or will deny that he's returning. It's essential doctrine. It's essential belief for us. And the reason is it's an essential belief for us to, re, to believe in his return is because it's essential to believe in his resurrection. And here in this passage, the two doctrines meet here. They converge. We've got the doctrine of personal bodily resurrection informing the doctrine of personal bodily return. And I said that the Thess we were looking at verse 14, I said the Thessalonians believed this, meaning Paul wasn't writing to convince them of this. Look at the way he phrases it, verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then you kind of think, well, then that means he's got to convince them now. But actually the way verse 14 is written, for since we believe... And even if you're looking at it in a New American Standard, you get the word if, but it's, I don't often do this with you with grammar, uh, Greek grammar, because I wasn't very good at Greek grammar in seminary. In fact, my first semester in Greek in seminary, I made a D. Nobody at First Event ever asked me for my transcripts. Um, Tim Keller made a C in preaching, it's true. So we can rise above our, our limitations. Um, but I got better as Greek went on. Uh, you get five semesters of it there. You got to do better after the first one. But grammatically, verse 14, can, here's your little grammar lesson for that. It contains a first class condition. Meaning, when you use a first class condition in the Greek language, you assume your reader believes what you're saying. So he's not setting them up in verse 13 to say, well, now I'm going to convince you in the rest of the passage why this is true. He's saying, we believe this already. The logic of resurrection flows to the reality of return. These come together. That's what he's telling them. Don't miss the linkage. But the question comes, well, what about those who've gone before us? Those who've died. Those who, well, we'll put it in a spatial way. It's not going to be exactly like this. I don't know if it will or not, but just to picture it for simplicity's sake. What about those who experience the return of Christ, not from our vantage point, which is to see, to look up and see him come, whether we actually look up or not, I don't know. But what about those who have the vantage point of being behind him, as it, as it were? Behind um, him, verse 14, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep, by which he means the dead in Christ. Redeem people who died. We not only get our faith turned to sight in such a way that we see Jesus, 
But according to this passage, we also get to see all our brothers and sisters in Christ who've fallen asleep, which is Paul's beautiful euphemism for death here. Why does he call death sleep? Because you sleep in order to wake up again. You go to sleep with the anticipation, morning will come and you'll wake up again. We die in Christ with the anticipation that we have a morning in Christ, that we live on after dying. This is Christian hope. And it's conveyed to us all through the New Testament, not as a hope so. Oh gosh, I hope it's true. You know, I'm, maybe it isn't, but I hope it is. It's conveyed to us as a no-so, as a confidence in the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us and because the resurrection is true. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then my hope for life after death is also true. And maybe I get to see the return and skip death. That'd be fine. Welcome it any day. Some generation will, generations that are alive at that time. Let me give you two simple takeaways from this passage, which is designed for our encouragement. Verse 18, encourage one another with these words. With what? Encourage one another with the reality of resurrection and the reality of his return. So in this view, before we have communion, and communion itself is an act that proclaims the Lord's death until he comes, resurrection and return together. But two takeaways here for our collective encouragement, and they have to do with just that, resurrection and return. That's what we're supposed to encourage one another with, resurrection and return. I'll put it as the surety of resurrection. Resurrection is assured. We know, verse 14, Jesus died and rose again. So too, we get the same experience unless we live to see his return. The surety of resurrection and the swiftness of return. But I don't want to take these as a first and then second. Let's just take them kind of together. So looking again at verse 14, the surety of resurrection. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died. That's confessional truth. And then the swiftness of return is verse 17. And this is also confessional truth. Verse 17, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. I can't overemphasize this. We confess as Christians, as people in Christ, the surety of resurrection and the swiftness of return. To give up either doctrine is to give up something core. Return and resurrection are conjoined. If the resurrection happened past, then the return will happen future, and these realities literally bookend our present walk with God, that our walk eventually becomes rising. Now, many in Jesus' day thought that was a bunch of hooey. Uh, namely, the Sadducee party, you've read about them in the Gospels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees did. There's not a lot you can credit the Pharisees with, but you can credit them with that. They had a belief in life after death. There's uh, some argument among ancient scholars as to what did the Greeks and Romans believe about life after death. They seem to have some conception of it, but not uh, not that, that uh, in, the, in the Christian view of it. In fact, you get into uh, the book of Acts and the preaching of the apostles in Acts 17 where Paul's preaching in Athens. And it says there when he got on the topic of resurrection, that's when the crowd began to disperse. Eh, this, this, guy is, this guy is nuts. What is he talking about? Many in our day 
think resurrection, uh, you know, that's, that's a nice thought. Um, but it's, it's not going to happen. They deny the very possibility. And many deny the very possibility of Jesus' return. And in fact, the scriptures anticipate that denial. Uh, let me find uh, quickly here the end of Second Peter. I'll just read you this. This is toward the end of Second Peter. He says, uh, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since, you know, uh, generations have passed, centuries have passed, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And what this says to us, the Bible is honest about the fact that Christian belief is not easy to adhere to. <laughs> Think about what you believe. You believe that a dead man walked out of his tomb alive. And you believe that is a historically verifiable event, not a religious belief that we pulled out of thin air. We believe a dead man walked out of his tomb alive and ascended from there into heaven, from where he'll return on a horse in the clouds. Amen. Eh? The horse isn't there in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's in Revelation. All right. That's where we get the horse from. And we looked at Revelation earlier this year. But then you ask the question, okay, well, that's a nice, that's a nice bouquet of a future, you know. What, what difference does it make now? What actual difference does belief in this doctrine of the return of Jesus make in the present time? Well, let me come at it this way. I assume that you, as I do, uh, want what we do in this world to matter. And so think about Jesus' life, all the good he did. If Jesus died after all the good he did, and that was it, what would that say to us about a good life? What would that say to us about living for something bigger than yourself? Well, maybe you generate some nice things while you're alive, but you'll eventually be dead, forgotten in a couple of generations. I mean, how many of you actually think about your great-great-great-grandfather? You don't even know who he is. I don't know who mine is. I mean, I can go, I, there's websites, I guess. I can go and look at that. I'm not a Mormon, so I don't care. That's just a joke, okay? It really is a joke. You don't have to write me. My brother's a Mormon, and he listens to you sometimes, and he turned it off. You know? I'm sorry, brother, in Utah, wherever you are. Uh, <laughs> what a weird day we live in. It's just such a weird, weird, weird day. What people can hear and can't hear. It's just, it's fascinating sociology to me. I'm talking to myself now. <laughs> Why bother doing good things? Why bother living a good life, a non-selfish life? If you're just going to die, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And you'd be forgotten. But your, my grandson's grandkids won't know who Pops is. Well, if you believe the material world came into being by chance and will eventually flame out in the death of the sun, S-U-N, sun, what motivation, if you believe that, and I don't think you do, but just let's take this, you know, kind of in a sense of our neighbors and what they believe, what motivation do you have really to try to make the world a better place if it's all just going to burn up in the end? You say, well, you know, I, I, I mean, gosh, I'd rather spend my time the time I have doing meaningful things. Okay, that's good. But if your worldview is actually 
The world came into being by chance, is sustained by chance, and we're here by chance. Do you not realize that your, your very worldview undermines whatever motivation you have to make a difference or be a good person in other people's eyes? Why? If it's all sustained by chance, if it all came into being by chance, if there's no such thing as resurrection, no such thing as return, if there's no deep down meaning to human life beyond our span of years, why not just be selfish? Why not just live for what you can get for yourself? You know, uh, the other big thing uh, this year has certainly been uh, social justice matters going on in, in American cities. And uh, it's not just been coronavirus. And a lot of people have marched through the streets of American cities this summer proclaiming their belief in justice, that they, they want to find meaning in justice. And I'm not talking about the violent people. I'm talking about the people who've just peacefully said, uh, I'm outraged by this thing that happened and I want, I want something to be different. Can it be different? And so they marched and they believed they were doing something needed and they were doing something meaningful and thereby important. And in fact, it's, it's got life and death importance attached to it. And when we get to biblical justice in November, I'll talk about the only motivation the world has to make you do justly is shame and strong-arming you and making you feel horrible if you don't. The gospel's a totally different motivational structure. But if you don't believe in resurrection, belief in justice has no anchor in a meaning that transcends the moment. This is why this is, this is the difference that Christian justice makers apply uh, at, at our task of doing justly. Without a belief in resurrection, calls for justice are more or less reactions to social situations and people will move on eventually to something else. Rather than, for Christians, it's a reaction anchored in anticipation of what happens at the return of Jesus, which is the greatest justice system ever descends. See, a lot of us think that the return of Jesus is our sayonara to the world. We're out of here, gathered to our people, Look at them all up there behind the guy on the horse. We're going. We're out. Mic drop, you know. Bye-bye, world. Good luck to you. And that's because we dwell on verse 17 exclusively. Verse 17, we are alive who are left, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we'll always be with the Lord. From here comes the doctrine of rapture. There's a, this term for caught up is seized, and there's a, a Latin word, rapturo, and that's where this doctrine comes out of. But we're out. The swiftness of return, yes, make it so, Lord Jesus, so long, world. You know. I, my uh, son, my youngest son, uh, Colson, uh, third or fourth grade, I can't remember when this was, and I won't say the kid's name, although we laugh about the kid's name. We, we do. It's kind of a funny name. Um, but this little kid was quite a character, and on the final day of class, he got to go out early. He got called, his name got called, and he's gathering all his stuff together, and he walks out, and the rest of the class is sitting there, and this little kid drops all his stuff in the hall and runs back in and goes, so long, suckers, and runs back out the door. I picture a little John Lovitz-looking kid, you know, doing that. We kind of take that attitude toward the world based on you know, supposedly based on this passage. Our Lord will show you someday. Won't you be sorry? But what we miss is in verse 16. Look at it. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. You know what that is? Or it goes on, it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, they will rise to their resurrection body. I don't know how to explain that to you, but this is how it will be. But the noise coming down is the justice of God coming down to bring just justice. There's a sound to that. In Paris this past week, you maybe saw the news report, there was a sonic boom over Paris. Did some of you see that? French jet fighter was uh, deployed to do something and he hit, uh, you know, whatever that is, and it was the sonic boom. And Parisians got worried when they heard this loud boom. In fact, the, the little clip I watched was from the French Open, the tennis match, and these two guys are playing their tennis match and the one guy's about to serve to the other and you see him, you know, dribbling the ball and suddenly boom. And you see him just stop, like we all do in modern living. And he looks across the net at the guy, and the look on his face is, do we keep playing? Is that a terrorist attack? Are we in some kind of trouble? Is there a threat? Millions of Parisians felt that in a moment. It was just a sonic boom. It was one of their guys up there, friendly, friendly, friendly playing. I heard that report this week working in this text, and it gave me an image of the sound, what it'll be like. Verse 16 is a sudden boom on the world when it happens, and it's very surprising to them. We'll get into this next week in next week's passage, in fact, but it's not surprising to us. Look down at chapter 5, verse 4. You are not in darkness, brothers, that this day should surprise you like a thief. Resurrection dignifies our days with meaning that transcends movements and, and the return of the Lord leaves no moment unjudged. This is part of our gospel. Everything wrong gets addressed by Jesus personally after this boom. The sound cloud previewed here, it's not simply judgment, it's justice. We miss that. And resurrection, it's not just the ultimate dignifier of our person, it's also the dignifier of our days. If the resurrection really happened, if God in the person of Jesus defeated death, found the door out of it as it were, that door of death also opens to a meaning in life that suffering and disappointment and despair and fears cannot take away from us. The resurrection gives us this. If you miss the resurrection, you miss Christianity. The value that God, and, and here's how it extends to us, the value that God placed on Jesus' own life extends to our lives. He was bodily raised. We get to be too. And only Jesus doing justly on our behalf, taking our sin and shame upon his cross, only that can really turn us into people who long for the return of the just judge doing justly, not because it's our sayonara moment, but because the world is finally put to rights. He returns to rescue his people and to renew his creation. And, and every effort we go to, to putting the world to rights in our own small circles is with this larger picture in mind and view. Else it's not worth doing. God will remake, we talked about this in Revelation, remake this world into a place where injustices of every kind never again encroach. It's a beautiful thing to anticipate and to count on that's why we're to encourage one another with these words and that's why we take these elements so let's turn now to communion and taking these elements together if you take these elements with us you're doing so in anticipation 
that resurrection and return belong together. In fact, as Paul wrote about it elsewhere in the New Testament, as often as we drink this, uh, eat this and drink this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The dead in Christ are not forgotten. He brings them with him. The alive in Christ, we here, we're not forgotten either. When God looks at you, this is a good thing to think about when you take communion elements, that when God looks at you in Christ, he sees you as one who is covered by the righteousness of his son, which was purchased at a, at a great cost to himself. And if you believe in his son and relate to God through Jesus, not your good works or that you're on the right side of this and you take the right view of that, anything that's commendable about you, there was only ever one who was flawless in God's eyes. One. And that one is for you. And because he is, we get to anticipate a resurrected body. And because he is made us right with God, when we take these elements, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an anticipation of a much larger meal that awaits us and a, and a much more full-on reality. As often as we eat and drink together this way, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Resurrection and return. When our faith becomes sight, when our walking is rising, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you for the arrangement of this meal and observance in our church and ordinance that takes us again and again to the heart of our faith. That our Savior did the work, did it flawlessly, walked out of his tomb, and sits at your right hand waiting to be deployed back here not just to rescue us but to renew creation and that's an act of justice and we thank you that we can depend on you to do all things well and you'll leave nothing undone that must be done thank you lord jesus for your gift to us of christ we pray in his name